0: to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters. In everything they are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. It's not particularly difficult to tell what the main thrust of Titus 2 is about. Uh, Whenever I'm preparing for a message, something that I usually do is I look for common or repeated words and also for common or repeated concepts. And within this section, it just really jumps out at you. It's all about teaching. And it's about a particular type of teaching. So verse one says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Doctrine is teachings. Verse three says, older women are to teach what is good. And so train the young women in verse 7, Titus himself is, is told, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. In verse 10, the bondservants or the slaves are encouraged to be honest and respectful and submissive, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine or the teachings, so adorn that which is taught of God our Saviour. In verse 12, The grace of God has appeared, and it doesn't only bring salvation, but also, verse 12 says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives. And then in verse 15, Titus is told to declare, exhort, rebuke with all authority, and these are all teaching tools for Titus to make sure that the message is taught and not disregarded. It's all about teaching Uh, now back in chapter 1 from last week uh, the false teachers um, and in this case the false teachers were what in other letters are called judaizers in in this letter they're referred to as the circumcision party they were condemned because they were teaching what ought not to be taught but now we get into chapter 2 and he's doubling down on the message but you've got to be teaching It's got to be good teaching and make sure that you're doing it. Now, when it comes to teaching, something that I've noticed within the church is the gullible and the undiscerning are easily led astray by false teaching. The proud, well, they just don't want to be taught at all. The unspiritual, will delight in worldly teaching that tells them exactly what their flesh wants to hear. The academic, well, they may crave theological teaching to increase their knowledge. Now, that's not always a bad thing. But the faithful and the spiritual crave teaching that accords with sound doctrine and they put it into very practical action in their lives. Right? So so this passage... Is all about teaching and how important it is to have teaching in the church but the second thing that comes through is the repeated theme that keeps coming right through this through this chapter is what sort of teaching Titus is to focus on and the answer to that question might be a bit of a surprise to some of us for those who are already saved right have already come to faith in Christ For these people for us hopefully the seems that the focus of our teaching should then become on good works and doing good works in our lives because we are already saved now that gets the bristles up on some people because we're good Protestants and we're good evangelical Protestants at that we've been taught that we're saved by grace alone we're saved by faith alone and this is all true we are not saved by doing good works that doesn't save us and we, we all understand that do we oh, good good but the problem is then that that in our zeal to make sure that everybody does understand this and, and that we're not saved by doing good works and that we are only saved by the grace of God and by having faith in the Lord Jesus Christ there are many folk who will then therefore despise and condemn any Bible teacher who gives, whose teaching ventures into the field of, you know what, we need to be doing good works. Um, I've experienced this I, in my past, that there have been some who would say, oh, he only ever teaches legalism. It, it's all about works. Because whenever they've heard teaching that Christians must do good works in their way of thinking, This is the opposite to being saved by grace. But it is not at all the opposite of being saved by grace. This is what grace teaches us to do. Verse 11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So, how are we saved? By the grace of God. But it continues talking about the grace of God in verse 12 training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled upright and godly lives in this present age and it goes on then to describe what describe this as being good works so if i view teaching on godly living if i view teaching that that christians must do good works if i view teaching like that as legalism or as being anti-grace it means i've completely misunderstood the gospel it means i've completely misunderstood what godliness is it means i've completely misunderstood the cross of christ and grace itself so because we're talking about good works i thought I'll, I'll get a bit of a feel for what the bible says about this overall so I did a search for good works in the New Testament and depending on the version that, that I looked at, that phrase came up between 13 and 15 times in, in the New Testament. Now how many of those quotes do you suppose would present good works in a bad light or present good works as something that we shouldn't teach or, or, ex, or expect God's people to do? Zero. Zero. In every case, good works are a marvellous thing. Good works are an indicator of faithfulness. Good works are something that should be evident in the life of every believer. As new creations in Christ Jesus, we are created for good works. We are to be rich in good works, not, not seeking worldly riches. In fact, if we have worldly riches, we should use those to be rich, in good works. We are to be devoted to good works. And this devotion to good works is something that we must learn to do. It doesn't always just happen naturally. We have to learn it. And we are to stir one another up to do good works. And I hope that we become that sort of people, that we do stir one another up to do what's good to live righteously to be holy if we are not a people who are teaching one another and urging one another on to do good works then we are not a people who live by grace we are a people who don't understand grace we're people who don't understand the gospel don't understand the heart of God and and even the the, the purpose and the power of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if we are not stirring one another up to do good works, then we don't act as a people who belong to Christ. Now, in recent years, there has been one verse from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, and this verse has been trotted out time and time again to try and teach that good works are something to be repented of. Um, In Isaiah chapter 64, righteous acts are described as filthy rags. Do Do you know that verse? Some of you do. Now, do you know why those righteous acts are described in that way? It's because he's talking about those who are supposed to be God's people. they've rejected God and they've rejected God's ways and and in most areas they're just living abominable lives at the end of chapter 63 which comes just before it he says we are like those who are not called by your name now for us as Christians without repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ we are not God's people And so what we are told to repent of is in Hebrews chapter 6, we're told to repent of dead works. What are dead works? Dead works is anything that we do as a rejection of God. But good works is not something to be repented of. As God's people, good works, we're told, is something that we are to devote ourselves to. And I stand by God's word on this. And here's why. As I said in, in Isaiah chapter 63 and 64, the condemnation was for those who were supposed to be God's people, but they were being like those who are not called by his name. But in today's reading, verse 14 explains how it should be for us. Now, this is really the purpose of the cross. Our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, now in verse 14, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. God owns us. He owns us twice over, really. He created us, so he should own us. But the thing is, in our sin, at one time we rebelled against God. But on the cross, Jesus Christ gave himself to redeem us, to buy us back and to purify us and to make us fit to be his people again. In our sin we were totally unworthy to be called the people of God. Totally unworthy. But by the blood of Jesus and by grace and in his mercy he has purified us and made us holy. We are indeed a people of his own possession. Now, as a people who belong to him, as a people whom he owns, our character cannot be anything other than being zealous for good works. Now, I actually find it shameful uh, that, well, it shames the Christian church that I need to explain this. I I mean, this should be Christianity 101. We're saved by grace, not by doing good works but we are saved to do good works. Being saved is such a practical thing. It is so life-changing. It is being born again. We are no longer what we once were. And it appears that, that the problem in the church at Crete, where Titus was, was there was a contingent who wrongly taught the need for all of these religious rules and regulations. That's what the Circumcision Party did. And that's what we talked about last week. But by their actions, they were not godly. Why? Because they weren't doing good works. They were teaching the need for what's called dead works without doing good works. So, verse 1, Titus teach what accords with sound doctrine, teachings. So when it comes to to righteousness and good works, what does that look like? And the way that he addresses this is he breaks it up into different groups of people. Um, Now, of course, for doing good works, a lot of this applies to all of us, but then certain groups of people sometimes need extra bits of advice. So first of all, he talks to the older men. Is there any older men here? No, Jake's pointing at me. Um, now, the thing is, back then, an older man probably would have been 30 or 40 years old, right? Life expectancy, not quite as long as today. Patting Alex's back there, good to see. Yep. Let's say mature men, mature men, older men, are to be sober-minded. Yep, that means that we shouldn't be drunks. But more than that, it, it, it's talking about not being easily led by the mob. We have to be clear-thinking. They're to be dignified. Uh, So his actions and his demeanour should be worthy of respect. self control means reasonable, prudent. Sound in faith. So to have a, a healthy trust in God. To be sound in love. And why not? I mean... Jesus said to his disciples, you will be known as my disciples because you loved one another. And they are to be sound in steadfastness, having a firm, unshakable faith. Older women, like the older men, are to be reverent in behaviour. So pretty much all of what we're hearing described here is being reverent in behaviour. They are to... Not be slanderers. Now, ooh, what's a slanderer? Um, Well, a slanderer is an accuser. And accusations are pretty much the foundation of gossip. And to share accusations, whether they be true or whether they be false, makes one a slanderer. And that's, as people of Christ, we're not meant to be. Not slaves of too much wine. Now this is something that keeps coming up through this list um, and it's very relevant to our culture. In our culture, uh, drinking alcohol and drinking it in excess is very much a part of our culture and it's a blight on the Christian church when, when we enter into that culture of drinking too much alcohol. It reflects badly on our Lord if we are drunks. It gives Jesus a bad name. They are to teach what is good uh, but who are they to teach the older women are to teach the younger women now back in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and we covered that a few months ago uh, Paul said something which isn't very popular uh, to a community that values equal opportunity he said I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Now, does that mean that there is no role for a woman in teaching? Of course not. And we're given an example of it here. Older women are to train younger women. And I get this. As a pastor and as a teacher, my calling and my duty is to teach the Word of God and to help us as a group to, to, to understand it, and to help us to know how we can apply it in different situations in life. But I am very aware, I'm fully aware, of my many shortcomings. On some issues, I am totally naive. Um, how could I, as a bloke, possibly be able to teach everything that a woman needs to know About how to practically apply her faith to being a woman and being a wife and being a mother how could I possibly share with a newly widowed woman from my own experience about what life's going to be like for her now and from now on and and how she can apply the scriptures and teachings of Jesus to her life and so all the women are to reach into their vast experience of of living as women of god throughout the years and all of the circumstances that they've had to deal with in life and they get alongside the younger women and they teach they teach the younger women how to apply and how to live as godly women they to lo- teach them to love their husbands and children Now who would have thought that you need to teach someone that i mean As a husband, I just assume that I'm just naturally lovable. Why why, why would my wife not love me? Um, Why are you laughing so much? Um, I suspect one of the reasons that the divorce rate is so high today is because we generally understand love as being something that you fall into. And you can just as easily fall out of. And then you move on to the next falling. And we even have the expectation that that love for one's child is something which is innate. But how to love and, and how to love with godly love is something we actually need training in. Love is often a conscious and determined giving of oneself for the benefit of the other at great cost to ourselves. And when men and women husbands and wives, mothers and fathers are not trained in how to love that is when they may feel that love has come to an end because they've never understood what love really is and how to do it. had to teach them to be self-controlled sometimes an older woman who's been through the sleepless nights of dealing with teething children and and who have experienced the fluctuations of hormones and mood swings that comes and goes at different t- periods of life, sometimes these are the ones who need to get alongside the younger women who are struggling with these issues and, and don't know how to cope. They teach them to be pure, working from home. Now, that can, we could be treading on dangerous ground here. Some people see that and go, oh, there you go, a woman's place is in the home and she shouldn't, shouldn't have another job, and if she goes outside, she only needs to go as far as the clothesline. Really, I don't, I don't think that's really what I see in the scriptures. I think of Proverbs chapter 31 that describes the perfect wife, and we're given a picture of a woman who works hard at home. She provides for a family, but she's also a businesswoman. She buys land, And she works hard and she plants vineyards and she trades and buys and sells. Then in Acts chapter 16, a godly woman by the name of Lydia is described as being a merchant in uh, purple goods. Now, purple was very expensive back then. It's a difficult dye to get back then. And um, she was trading in that. I reckon what he's really getting at is probably close to the old saying. It's not, it's not from the Bible, but it's just an old saying, pro- proverb, which is true. Idle hands are the workers of the devil. Right? Um, keeping busy and doing good helps us to remain pure. In one of his other letters, I can't remember which one it is, Paul talks about um, some women who are, they're not busy, they're busy bodies. And they're getting prying into other people's lives, etc., etc., etc. I think that's a similar thing to what he's saying here. They are to be taught to be kind. And sometimes I think we all need a reminder that our kindness needs a bit of work. They are to be submissive to their own husbands. So, just as we all submit in different areas of our lives, and husbands and wives submit to one another. Sometimes a word from a godly older woman can help a a new wife to understand what this means. And there is a reason for all of this, that the word of God may not be reviled. Now when he says that, I reckon he's not only talking to the women, this is for all of us. If we do not live as godly people, what does that make us? Hypocrites, And being a hypocrite reflects badly on our Lord and it reflects badly on God's word. Then there comes a word to younger men um, and he uses the word likewise. In, all, in other words, pretty much most of what you've already heard, apply that. Plus, then he draws special attention to one thing to be self-controlled. Why would he say that to young men, I wonder? It's probably because young men, not always known for their self-control, run off the handle, get a bit rash, do silly things. But as Jesus's possession, we are to learn to be self-controlled. Notice I use the word we, class myself as a younger man again. Here I am a grandpa, I still think I'm a young man. I guess I'll have to change my thinking. And then he turns to Titus himself. And what Paul says here is true for all of us, but especially for leaders in the church. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. In other words, if you're going to be teaching this, you better practice what you preach. Now, I've said this numerous times, Um, And I'll say it again. Whenever I'm preparing for a sermon, I am very aware that probably the main person that I'm going to be preaching to is myself. And as I prepare my sermons, I'm probably learning more than what you're going to learn today. And as God is challenging you today, he's already been challenging me and he's going to continue to challenge me. And as you apply changes to your life from what, you, what God has revealed to you today, I also need to be applying changes to my life. So show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And even the way that one teaches this is important. He says, in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, sound speech that cannot be condemned see what one teaches must be what Jesus and his apostles taught it's got to be true Um, and one has to rightly handle the word of truth and the reason for this is so that those who are opposed to the true gospel don't have a leg to stand on see if I stand up here today and just start teaching you my own thoughts or if I start digging into the latest learnings of psychology and sociology and share that with you, and, and that's the message that I give to you, then somebody can come say, well, Michael, that's a load of rot. And how can I argue against that? But if I am teaching straight from the scriptures what, God, what God's word says, what Jesus and the apostles taught, then I just say, well... There it is in God's word. How, how can you disagree with that? It's gotta be true. Because if someone argues with it, then they won't have a leg to stand on. And the final group he then addresses are the slaves or the bond servants. They are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. See, in all things, in every station in life, the way to honour God is to do good, to be faithful witnesses to him and to serve others as well as we can in what God has called us to do. Now, for us, uh, no one here is a slave or a bond servant. But even so, If I were to hold the most menial of jobs I am to honour God by doing it honestly and by doing it well. Even if I'm mistreated by the boss that doesn't make it a good witness to be argumentative or to be disobedient. If I feel that I'm not being paid enough for the work that I do, that doesn't Mean that the boss's assets are something that I can tuck into my lunchbox and take home with me at the end of the day. Let everything that we do prove the truth of the gospel. Now, bond servants or, or slaves—they often had to serve in the, in the most difficult of circumstances, and as believers, as they served well in those circumstances. This is testament to the, to the saving and life-changing power of the gospel. Why are lives changed? Because by grace and by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have been saved. And this grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. See, as Christians, we're different to most people in this town. We don't strive and struggle to get the best that we can get. Nor do we crave the desires of the flesh that, that that the world would have us crave because our hope is set on something far, far greater. We're not living for this present age. And sometimes we need to remind ourselves of this. When everyone else is striving and they seem to be accumulating or or whatever they're doing, and we think, oh, I've got to try and keep up. Sometimes we need to remind ourselves, hey, I'm actually different to them. My hope isn't set on this age. As verse 13 says, we are waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. We long for the day when Jesus returns. We long for this day of glory. And this, my friends, is the difference between having a spiritual outlook on life and having an unspiritual outlook. Spiritual men and spiritual women live not for this present age, but for the age to come. And as we live for the age to come, we know that we are his own possession, zealous for good works. And so chapter 2 concludes with Paul telling Titus, declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Now, if if it was important for Titus, it's important for us to declare, to exhort, and to rebuke with all authority. Living righteously, doing good works, is the way we honour Jesus. As we wait for his glorious coming. Let's pray. Heavenly Father we thank you that you have saved us by grace. We were totally lost. No good works could could ever be good enough to pay for the sin that we've committed and so we thank you that Jesus Christ gave himself on the cross that we might receive mercy and be saved. Lord, how great and how wonderful is this salvation. And what a blessing it is to be redeemed, to be a people for your own possession. Lord, help us to live as your people, living righteously, doing good, being at all times a people of justice and mercy and love. And while we await your glorious coming, may we be a people who bring you honour and glory in this present age. In Jesus' name, amen.